This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. All right, Brad, let's get into it. A lot of news to discuss today. Uh, first things first, let's start in the world of Marvel, as we often do. Um, Marvel's The Kang Dynasty, Avengers The Kang Dynasty, has found a new screenwriter, and that is Michael Waldron, who is a guy who uh, wrote the screenplay for uh, Doctor Strange 2, and he also was the creator slash showrunner slash creative uh, force behind the first season of Loki. And interestingly, he has also already been hired to write Avengers Secret Wars, which is the movie that comes out after Kang Dynasty. So now he's going to be sort of doing this one-two punch of writing the next two big Avengers movies. Uh, What do you make of Michael Waldron as like the new, um, I don't know, Joss Whedon or James Gunn or like big, you know, big time heavy hitter power, you know, creative force at Marvel? 
Uh, you know, I, I personally like this. Um, I think Loki season one is one of the best things Marvel has done on Disney Plus since they started doing their whole TV show endeavor. Uh, and even though Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness uh, definitely has plenty of shortcomings, I would wager that it's not because of Michael Waldron that the movie feels like uh, a disjointed mess because there was a lot happening behind the scenes on that. Marvel did a lot of tinkering uh, with the movie and the editing room and reshoots and rewrites and all that stuff. Uh, and Waldron wasn't necessarily uh, always integral to what was happening. You know, he wrote the the initial script and whatever happened after that, you know, who knows? And he was involved, you know, somewhat with, with certain things. But uh, I don't think we can put the full blame on how, you know, disappointing Multiverse of Madness might have been. So uh, mm-hmm. he, he comes from Rick and Morty, and so he has both a comedic edge to him, and he's also uh, an incredibly nerdy sci-fi writer. So he's kind of the perfect person to tackle stuff like this. So I'm I'm definitely interested to see what he can do on uh, an even larger scale than he's gotten so far. Yeah, like the thing about Marvel, I think like one of their defining qualities as a company is being able to tinker with their stuff up until the very last minute to try to get it, you know, as close to perfect as they can or what they, what they deem perfect, what Kevin Feige deems perfect. Um, and so the idea of hiring him uh, Michael Waldron to write both of these Avengers. I mean, Avengers movies are like very, very important in Marvel in the grand scheme of what's going on with Marvel. I think that's like, um, you know, people, people forget how much money those movies make. Uh, and I think, um, you know, having him there, do you think that that provides any sort of like creative cohesion, like him writing the lead in to a movie that he was already writing? Like, do you think that, that, um, that will outweigh, whatever Marvel does in terms of like their typical process of like tinkering and tweaking and, and sort of uh, messing with stuff up until the very last minute, or do you think that it doesn't really matter? Yeah. I mean, I would at least hope that it would allow, you know, some kind of uh, in, um, harmony between the two movies, you know, cause the, there has been some issues in the past of like certain movies, not necessarily feeling like they, they belong together, even though they have all of this crossover, you know, happening between the characters and stuff like that. And so, dealing with two Avengers movies that, um, you know, hopefully it'll be a scenario like when you had the Russos on Infinity War and Endgame, where they feel like they're, you know, really meant to fit together and tell this one larger story that is also part of an even larger story that is the MCU. So, yeah, I hope that having him on there does create, you know, some semblance of, of organization and cohesion between the two. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think that's a good transition point into our next story, which is like the idea of organization and cohesion uh, could apply very well to the Star Wars universe as, as well, because um, Dave Filoni has just been given a promotion over there. Tell me about that, Brad. Yeah, so Dave Filoni is basically now the chief creative officer over at Lucasfilm. And it's something that kind of seems like he's already been doing for a while, but they probably just kind of like gave him an official title or like just decided to announce it formally to, to the public through the press. Um, and basically it just has him overseeing star Wars as a universe kind of in a way as the new George Lucas. So even though Kathleen Kennedy is the president of Lucasfilm, you know, when it comes to star Wars, Kathleen Kennedy probably isn't like the ultimate star Wars expert when it comes to emulating what George Lucas wanted to do with the universe and the characters and understanding all of the nuances and intricate, obscure facets that you would want a, you know, a, a genuine fan of Star Wars to, to know about. And Filoni will be that guide, you know, so he'll he's involved with the development of the various TV shows and the new era of Star Wars movies. So um, it's, it's a key role. And it's one, he's really the kind of person that I think that you want in that role, whether or not he will be akin to a Kevin Feige and have like 
uh, an extensive amount of control over what happens with each of those properties. That kind of remains to be seen. But at the very least, you know, he'll be there to help shape it so that it's something that does fit into the larger Star Wars universe and, you know, makes makes sense and doesn't feel like it's out of left field. Yeah, he said his quote was in the past in a lot of projects, I would be brought into it, I would see, oh, oh I would see it after it had already been developed a good ways. So that, that was part of his quote. And now he's going to be there basically like at the inception point for a lot of these and, and sort of yeah. help, uh, helping to shepherd those projects forward. So I guess the question is like, you know, you mentioned he was probably already behind the scenes to a, a significant degree before, but now like him, you know, moving him up on that timeline in terms of like, letting him have his input into these projects early on in their earliest stages. What do you think that says about what we can expect from future projects in the Star Wars universe? Do you think that he is going to be, um, I guess what it boils down for me personally, Brad, is like, I typically like the stuff that he's not really involved with <laughs> that, that comes from Star Wars because I didn't watch any of the animated shows that he worked on. And like, um, so I'm wondering if, you know, we might get more Andors out of this situation. Like, do you think he's going to be willing to sort of take some of those creative leaps that we've all been like crossing our fingers that Lucasfilm would take? Or do you think that this means that basically, you know, his uh, more of his involvement is just going to result in like more uh, reflections of his view of what Star Wars should be? And like, basically what that means is stories that sprang forth from the prequels and the animated shows and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I hope it's the little of column A, little of column B, because uh, as somebody who isn't necessarily a, a big fan of the animated side of Star Wars, and I don't have a particular affinity for, you know, the characters that Filoni has created and brought into live action Star Wars by way of the Mandalorian and, and Ahsoka and whatnot, uh, I still like his approach to Star Wars because he really is a, um, you know, uh, a child of George Lucas. You know, he he worked under Lucas. He learned a lot from him while he was making uh, the Clone Wars, and he feels like he's the one who really does understand like the spirit of Star Wars at its core. But I also still hope that there is room to get series like like Andor and stuff that does expand the the scope and feel of what Star Wars can be. So it doesn't necessarily all have the same somewhat whimsical space fantasy kind of feel. Like, of course, that's what you know Star Wars movies has have been, but like it's a big universe, and you know to to only tell the same kind of stories over and over again feels like a waste of such a, a vast galaxy with, you know, an endless variety of, of characters and stories to tell. So I hope that we do get, you know, something like Andor and things like that. And, you know, I, I think that even though Filoni's in this position now, it doesn't mean that projects like that can't move forward, you know, because at the end of the day, Kathleen Kennedy is still the president of Lucasfilm. You know, she's the one who made Andor happen. Um, and so there's, I, I think that there's still potential there for, for a certain amount of creativity. But if anything, maybe one of the things that this can help improve with Star Wars is giving it a, I guess, more of a, a feel that there is, um, you know, again, it comes back to cohesion, kind of similar to the, the Avengers thing, where, like, if there's one problem that we had with the, the new trilogy of Star Wars movies, it's that they weren't all helmed and guided by the same filmmaker. And so we got the mess that we got. And, mm -hmm. you know, you have uh, one stellar movie, The Last Jedi, deal with it. Uh, one OK <laughs> movie, The Force Awakens, and one disaster, The Rise of Skywalker. And the way they fit together is... Um, you know, kind of haphazard and slapdash because they had to figure out how to make things fit when they react to how things went with certain fans and all that jazz. So mm -hmm. if, if anything, hopefully having Filoni here uh, 
will give some sense of unity to Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I I am optimistic that that's the case. And I just hope that he, um, you know, is is basically like uh, responsible with the keys to the kingdom that he's been handed or whatever, you know, whatever key. Uh, <laughs> he hasn't been handed the entire keys, but um, I don't, Brad, I don't really, I've seen a lot of people say like, oh, this just means that this is putting him in place to take over for Kathleen Kennedy. And like, I, I don't think there's enough um, evidence out there to to really support that claim yet. Like maybe one day Kathleen Kennedy is not going to be leading Lucasfilm, but like, I don't know if we can go ahead and say, oh, Dave Filoni is being positioned to become the new leader. Do you? I don't know. No, only because, I mean, because even though Star Wars is like really the definitive property of Lucasfilm, Lucasfilm does more than just Star Wars, you know? And so like Filoni is a Star Wars expert through and through, but is he going to oversee like a reboot of Indiana Jones when and if that happens? You know, is he going to oversee things like, you know, potentially bringing back Willow or any of the other stuff that Mm -hmm. Lucasfilm might want to make, you know, like that doesn't seem like his bag. I don't, I don't think he's a full on studio head figure. I think he's a Star Wars shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, Okay. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some casting news from James Gunn's Superman legacy. We found out that Skylar Gazondo, who was in Booksmart and the Righteous Gemstones and a bunch of stuff, actually, I was just looking at his credits before we started recording and I was surprised at how many things that he's been in. He has been cast as Jimmy Olsen in this new project. And we know that uh, a model named Sarah Sampaio has joined the cast also as Eve Tessmacher, who is the sort of like a secretary figure to Lex Luthor. Um, Lex Luthor, as we talked about last week, is going to be played by Nicholas Holt. So what do you think about this casting, especially of uh, Skylar Gassando as Jimmy Olsen, Brad? Uh, I really like Skylar Gazando. I think he's very funny. He's also perpetually 15 years old, apparently, um, which works perfect for a character like Jimmy Olsen. Um, so, yeah, I, I really think this is perfect casting. It's somebody that fans had wanted to see in the role as well. He just has this great uh, boyish look about him. He's he's very funny, too. It's uh, one movie that I I will always be an apologist for, and I think it's hilarious, is the, the reboot of Vacation with Ed Helms and Christina Applegate. Oh, I never um, saw that one. It's it's really funny, you know. It's uh, it, it's not perfect by by any means, and and it and it has a little bit of a different comedic flair than uh, the original Vacation movies. But I think it's a very funny movie. It's it's uh, it was written by uh, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, uh, and and they also directed it too, actually. I think so. Yeah, you know, if you've liked their movies, then there's a good chance that you'll at least have some laughs while watching it. And he plays uh, Rusty's son in in that movie. So oh, gotcha. Uh, one of them anyway, and it's uh, he's he's very funny in it, and I, I really like the movie. So yeah, I'm I'm down with this. Okay, cool. Uh, I wanted to read uh, a listener email that we got um, from Lorenzo from Florida, who uh, was responding to the conversation that you and I had last week about Lex Luthor. And, um, you know, I think you were saying, like, I I would love it if Lex Luthor did not appear in a Superman movie right off the bat. And he was, uh, uh, Lorenzo was pointing out that Man of Steel did not actually include uh, Lex Luthor. So that was kind of answering the the desire that you had brad although he did get obviously brought in for batman versus superman um but he was basically saying like he was trying to compare lex Luthor to the joker he said cinematically lex is in a very different different place than the joker four actors have already knocked it out of the park as the joker in live action movies however while michael rosenbaum's portrayal of lex on smallville was perfect in terms of live action films lex has never been done justice gene hackman's lex is hilarious in all three of the movies in which he appeared but hilarious is not a word that i want to use uh that i want to be using to describe lex kevin spacey's lex has 
moments of being terrifying in Superman Returns, but technically he was playing the same version as Gene Hackman was, and that's uh, sort of seeps into many of the other moments in that movie. Jesse Eisenberg's Lex was finally one from a character motivation standpoint that was written the way I wanted to see it, but the acting choices and mannerisms were not what I wanted from that character. So all three previous live action movie portrayals of Lex Luthor have been mixed bags. Um, And basically he's just saying like, live action directors need to keep going back to the well with this character until he really like becomes uh, on par with the cinematic legacy of a character like the Joker. Uh, Because in uh, Lorenzo's words, Lex Luthor is the most compelling villain ever created. And he deserves that level of treatment cinematically, regardless of how many attempts it takes. So I I wonder if you hold Lex Luthor in that same light in your head, Brad, in terms of like, uh, he is one of the canonical, you know, DC comics, like, mega villains but do you think of that character that way in in terms of like where he should uh be positioned in pop culture yeah i mean there's there's no denying that lex luther is like such an integral part of dc comics you know especially superman he's his arch nemesis and like he he has to be a major figure in those movies um and that's definitely my fault for forgetting that lex luther was not part of man of steel and it just goes to show you how much all of Zack snyder's dc universe mess runs together uh as just a a nightmare that i wish you could forget (laughs) um and while i will disagree that we've had uh, four actors deliver fantastic portrayals of Joker because if he's including Jared Leto in that mix, then just no, sorry. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I, I do think Lex Luthor is, is still important. And I, I will agree uh, absolutely that I don't think we've gotten a portrayal of Lex Luthor that is on par with something like Jack Nicholson's Joker or Heath Ledger's Joker. There's yet mm-hmm. to be a definitive representation of Lex Luthor that I think embodies what the villain is supposed to represent uh, at as far as his, his place in Superman's uh, history and DC comics, you know, um, I, I do, th- I, I like the idea of, you know, uh, Kevin Spacey getting close, even though he's a piece of shit. Um, and his, his, his portrayal was good, but it was echoing Gene Hackman's performance. So I, I would like to see somebody really step into that role and define, give, give us that defining performance that people will think, Oh, this is like the best Lex Luthor has ever been. So that would be Mm -hmm. cool when we get to see it, but there with so many different Superman villains out there, uh, it would be nice just, you know, to take a break from Lex for a little while too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So let's move on to uh, a couple uh, pieces of news out of the alien world. Timothy Oliphant has joined Noah Hawley's new alien show and then the new alien movie, which I don't think has an official title yet, is uh, being is going to be set between Alien and Aliens. So on the on the timeline. So I guess let's break this down one at a time. So Timothy Oliphant is playing a synthetic character who acts as a mentor and a trainer for the female lead of the show in this new Noah Hawley led Alien show, which is going to be out on FX I think sometime next year. Um, what do you make of Timothy Oliphant joining? this uh this series brad he's definitely like the biggest name involved in this cast so far i love it you know uh i i'm all all for timothy oliphant being in in anything and that was a fun sentence to say unexpectedly um (laughs) uh yeah i mean he's he's a stellar actor um i i end up liking him in pretty much any role that i see him in even when i'm not expecting you know to to him to be like uh, a standout in in any given movie. Um, so yeah, having him play a you know an android character in the Alien universe is pretty exciting, especially just because of the. Um, I feel like it's gonna make people super horny for androids. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, how can it not? For sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Tim the Olfant definitely has that effect. Um, yeah, just a handsome salt and pepper android walking around. Yeah. Like, honestly, I, you know, Noah Hawley is an interesting guy, but I, I've not uh, followed every single season of Fargo. I have not I have seen the, um, the movie that he made. I didn't really catch up on Legion. I watched like the first few episodes of that. So he's not, he's not really been like a, um, I don't know, an auteur, a modern uh, auteur that I have like followed closely. So even though it was exciting that he was attached to an alien thing and like there's a certain sort of baseline level of quality that one expects uh, from hearing those combinations of, you know, the, the combination of him as a storyteller and this franchise, uh, I think the the Oliphant casting is the first thing that has actually gotten me like legitimately interested in actually sitting down to watch this as opposed to just like thinking about it from afar and being like, Oh, I'm cool. You know, that, that's cool that that exists. I'm happy that, you know, that people are happy kind of thing. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what this looks like. And then in terms of the movie, uh, this new alien movie being set between the first two films, um, what does that mean to you, Brad? Anything? Are you like excited about the idea of a new alien film from, uh, I think, Fede Alvarez is the director of this one, the guy who did the, the Evil Dead remake and Don't Breathe. So it makes me wonder if it if that means it's maybe something that like leads into the events of Aliens, like if we'll if we'll like see characters who are maybe like only briefly talked about because what what happens with Aliens is there's a setup because uh there, there's like some kind of like distress signal that's sent out right am, am i remembering that correctly i think that's right yeah it's been a long time since i've seen those but i'm pretty sure uh ripley like wakes up from being in hypersleep and then uh there's the distress signal and she decides to that she's gonna like be a part of uh the team that goes and, and tries to answer that signal i'm pretty sure that's correct yeah so i do wonder if that means we'll get to encounter those characters and see what they dealt with when they were there and if it will feel like you know if a full-on prequel or if it's something that just happens to take place uh in between those movies maybe maybe elsewhere or something like that you know who, uh, hmm. i'm not entirely sure yeah, I didn't think about that, but I think that that provides certainly on paper an interesting sort of compelling idea like the because there's so much mystery, um, it doesn't have that prequel problem of like, oh, we already know what happens to XYZ characters. We know who lives and who dies. It's just sort of like more of a vague thing. So slotting it into that um, position. Well, I, I do think, I mean, pretty much everyone would have to end up dead, right? Unless they unless there are some who escaped and they just don't know about it or... Right. You know, so because if they're if they're part of the installment there, then everyone except for Newt, you know, is is dead. Uh, unless yeah. there's like a contingent of survivors who, you know, make it by escaping and are just unaccounted for or something. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, because I, I kind of doubt that uh, Fox would make an alien movie where literally every single human character dies at the end of it, which is what that that would mean if if this movie is actually, you know, set in that, <laughs> in but that moment. But people love Rogue One, so... Oh yeah, that's true. I guess I guess that is true. Man, you're just firing these comebacks at me. Um, okay, well yeah. So I'm curious to see what happens with that. It's it's going to be like very interesting that there are two alien projects after there being years of nothing that really don't really have anything to do with each other. Or I'm not sure if they're like set in the same uh, canonical timeline or anything like that. Like exactly, uh, you know in this literally the same universe or, or what's going to happen there. Um, but just the fact that we're about to hit like a period of alien overload is going to be, yeah, kind of fascinating to think about the new film uh, comes out in August of next year. So um, I think that'll be like pretty close to when the, the new show comes out. So, uh, okay, well let's take a, a break and then we'll come back and talk about a bunch more movie news right after this. 
Okay, Brad. So we have to talk a little bit about the Scream 7 chaos that happened at the end of last week. So um, Melissa Barrera had been has been removed from the cast. Uh, Jenna Ortega will also not be back. She actually dropped out months before this whole uh, Melissa Barrera uh, fiasco happened. But uh, yeah, in, in short, I'll, I'll try to be as concise here as possible, but Variety reported and, and Slash Film sources confirmed this as well, that Melissa Barrera has quietly exited uh, Scream 7. Obviously, the uproar around it has been anything but quiet. Um, but uh, th- this was not part of the original plan for what this movie was supposed to be. Um, and Variety has confirmed that her exit was not due to calling for a ceasefire in the uh, Israeli um, Hamas conflict, but for, quote, crossing the line into anti-Semitism, which is what Variety said. And uh, basically, they said they like repeated some um, phrases that she has posted on her social media and like basically the entire internet blew up um, at this. So uh, yeah, the whole thing was really, really messy. Uh, Spyglass, which is the company that is producing these movies, released its own sort of official statement in the in response to this big swift uproar that happened. And their official statement was like a total mess and sounded awful and like seemed to be making apologies for uh what's going on what the israeli government is doing to to civilians in gaza so just like not what you want to see at all um this entire situation just seems like super super messy um but if you're looking for like you know hard facts and like real details of of what is going on here i would just encourage people to like read the articles that we have at slash home because i stand behind the reporting that we did 100%. So um, I don't know. Do you have any any uh, reaction to any of this, Brad? Like, this was just such a loud thing. I felt like we, we have to talk about it in some capacity. Yeah, no, unlike the rest of the internet, I'm just going to withhold from reacting because everyone is being so reactive about everything involving the, this conflict and this story. And it's just, it's really just uh, not worth the hubbub when it's about uh, a, a movie, you know, making these changes based on a conflict that no one really has a firm understanding on and is yeah. so complicated, like just digging into it like this, you know, and having all these uh, armchair critics just rage about it online. is It's not helping anybody. It's not yeah. helping anybody. Yeah, that's how I feel as well. I mean, like I... <laughs> I try to read the news and, and keep up with things as best I can, but like we're there are other podcasts out there that talk about geopolitics and stuff like that that have like a much more firm uh, grasp on on that and and uh, so uh, yeah I don't want to like necessarily wade into the details there, but I just wanted to mention it and again like if you're looking for um, people if you're looking for the the antidote to people just screaming about stuff that they they're not really sure what they're talking about just read the articles that we have on slash film i'll link to them in the show notes um okay let's move on to a new stephen king adaptation has been announced and that is called the long walk and francis lawrence the guy who just directed the hunger games the ballad of songbirds and snakes is going to be directing this movie and uh have you ever read the long walk brad i have not uh, and only today did i learn what it was about yeah, me too. So uh, why don't you tell me what this book is about? This is like, uh, I think Chris Evangelista, uh, who's a huge Stephen King fan, said that this is actually the first book that Stephen King ever wrote. Um, it was not the first book that was published. That was Carrie. But uh, he wrote The Long Walk before he wrote Carrie. Um, tell me what this story is about. Uh, yeah, so not unlike uh, The Hunger Games, it is a, uh, a dystopian uh, kind of sci-fi novel where America is ruled by this uh, totalitarian uh, government, basically. 
uh, and it follows the contestants who are involved in this walking contest. So it's not a fight like at the Hunger Games, uh, but it is this thing where a uh, hundred teenage boys are supposed to walk without rest along this uh, U.S. R- uh, route. Um, they have to stay like above four miles per hour. Uh, and if you, if you, like, there's there's all these rules that are that are set for it. And the last person, you know, surviving basically wins a bunch of money and some kind of prize uh, of their choice. So uh, it's easy to see why this would be, you know, um, a draw for for someone like uh, Francis Lawrence. Although it does seem strange that he's doing something that does feel like it carries a lot of the same thematic weight as the Hunger Games. But mm-hmm. part of me wonders if the long walk is something that he was interested in before Hunger Games came along and he took Hunger Games because like, oh, maybe this is my chance to do something like the long walk. And then now this comes around and he like kind of gets maybe what, what, what could be a dream project for him. I don't know. Yeah, because there have been a bunch of different directors attached to direct the story over the years. George A. Romero, Frank Darabont, uh, Andre Overdahl, like a bunch of folks have been sort of attached and like have not found a way to actually get this thing over the finish line. And I think it's because the story is like so um, intense. The violence is so built in. But I wonder if in a like post Squid Game world, maybe the audiences are actually like a little bit more ready for that than they were, you know, years ago when those guys were were trying to get this thing moving. Um, Because Squid Game is like the most popular show in Netflix history. And that show is kind of brutal. And like, it has that same sort of dystopian, uh, violent aspect to it. And almost like, yeah, that sort of like game show kind of quality. And uh, this kind of seems you know, if not exactly similar, certainly like in the same family or something like. So I, I wonder if you think that um, the the reason this might be moving forward now has anything to do with the success of Squid Game. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment, you know, um, and considering just like the 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 general, you know, social political vibe that America is in right now, it just feels like a story that is, you know, still still relevant. It's the same reason why the Hunger Games uh, has only gotten more relevant as time has gone on. So there's, there's always going to be room for, for stories like this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so two of the biggest names in movies, Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese, are teaming up for their first TV collaboration. They are set to executive produce a show called Cape Fear, based on the movie, that is going to be uh, showrun by this guy named Nick Antosca, who uh, worked on Channel Zero and then uh, a crime drama called The Act. And uh, these guys, yeah, Scorsese and Spielberg, longtime friends, pals, I mean, cinema legends, teaming up to EP a TV show. Um, Cape Fear is interesting because Martin Scorsese, uh, there there was a a movie uh, version of Cape Fear in the early 60s, and then Martin Scorsese remade it in, I think, the early 90s. And Spielberg was actually going to... um, direct that that movie remake but he like traded that project to scorsese for schindler's list um so there's like a little bit of history there and i think that's part of the reason why both of these guys are on board uh to executive produce this new version of it um have you seen the cape fear that scorsese directed brad i have it's it's very very good yeah, so Robert De Niro plays the the lead sort of villainous character there. Um, why don't you just tell me if you can, Brad? Like, uh, I guess like the the log line or like two or three sentence pitch of like what Cape Fear is, in case people haven't, uh, in case that movie is not on their radar. Yeah, for sure. So it's uh, it's a psychological thriller, and it is a remake of the movie uh, from the '60s. And basically, there's it's the story of this uh, convicted rapist who ends up getting out of uh, jail. Um, after finding a, a loophole in the legal system, and he decides to seek vengeance against the lawyer 
um, who got him into prison uh, for apparently using faulty defense tactics. Um, and the character that De Niro plays is just this terrifying uh, sort of, you know, prisoner who is who starts stalking uh, Nick Nolte and his family. Um, and it's one of De Niro's, you know, uh, most unsettling performances um, as uh, um, Max Cady. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's a fantastic movie. I feel like, and this movie came out around the time that like um, films like Pacific Heights and these sort of like roommate from hell type of characters were yeah. uh, popular in in, uh, in American movies. And so I'm. it's been a long time since I've seen Cape Fear, but I remember him doing this thing where he sort of like would terrorize this family, but not really do so in a way that was um, overtly illegal, right? Like he was just kind of like, always hovering around like very close to their property, but like not really. I mean, he would, he would cross the line occasionally because he's a movie villain, but like the, the frustration the the sense that I, uh, the, the, um, visceral sense memory that I have from watching this movie is one of frustration of being like, my God, like why these guys can't do anything about this character because he's being like, so, um, annoying and basically and evil and, and sort of like in their face about, uh, not being able to um, about like not quite crossing the line to the point where like they can't call the cops and like get them to do anything about it because he wasn't technically doing anything illegal. Do you remember that from from the movie? Am I? Uh, no, no. Yeah, I... there's a big part of it that is basically of just like him pushing Nolte's buttons and like doing things that make him uncomfortable and drive him crazy, but don't allow him to really do anything about it he still does some very heinous things like for example there's like a, a courthouse clerk that like kind of flirts with nolte's character and uh max actually like rapes and beats her so like oh, that's, Jesus. A, that, that's a pretty harsh thing like but, but again he's not doing it to nolte and his family it's somebody nearby him and like you know where he understands what's going on and so it just drives him even more uh to the edge and like losing, yeah. losing his mind about what's happening yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, yeah, like a, a very, very intense story. And I'm curious to see what they do in terms of like a, a contemporary uh, updating of this. Um, the description of this new show is that it's going to be uh, examining America's obsession with true crime in the 21st century. Um, in the show, a storm is coming for a pair of married attorneys when an infamous killer from their past gets released after years in prison. So the idea that uh, this examines America's obsession with true crime is really fascinating. I, I don't know exactly what that means in this context. They're keeping it deliberately vague for now. But like if if um, the the thought that came to my mind when I read that, Brad, was like, uh, if these lawyers had anything to do with putting this, this guy away, which I presume they did. And then like, maybe if there's a true crime podcast that goes in and, and tries to like, uh, make it seem like this guy was innocent or something. And he sort of has America on his side as this guy who was released from prison. And now like in the public's eyes and like the eyes of Reddit or whatever can do no wrong. But then he, you know, is actually this psychopath who like comes after this family, that would just be like a really interesting way to approach uh, a modernized version of this story. So um, yeah, very, very curious to see what happens in our old pals, uh, Stevie and Marty hanging out in the TV space. It's, it's pretty awesome. So um, 
Okay, the, the last uh, story that I wanted to mention here, Brad, is a, a new Karate Kid movie is on the way. And I know that you uh, have watched some of, if not all, of Cobra Kai and are a little bit tapped into, more tapped into this universe than I am. So I, I'm excited to have you on the show uh, to talk to you about this because what do you think about this? A new Karate Kid movie is, is bringing Jackie Chan and Ralph Macchio together and sort of uniting these uh, formerly disparate universes. Yeah, so this is really interesting to me because uh, I, I didn't, you know, super enjoy the Karate Kid reboot with Jackie Chan uh, and Jaden Smith. Um, uh, I think Jackie Chan is, is great, you know, and he's kind of a, a good person to take over that role of, of Mr. Miyagi if you're going to do it right. But it just kind of stands on its own. And obviously nothing really came of it after it came out. So doing something that bridges together the original Karate Kid universe and that one and makes them both uh canon and and brings them together is really fascinating to me especially because it seems like that they would need to come up with an explanation for jackie chan's character who is also named mr miyagi so i was gonna ask about that because i never saw that movie i never saw the jaden smith movie, yeah so. so so is jackie chan going to be like a, an estranged son of mr miyagi is he going to be an adoptive son maybe somebody who like was one of um Miyagi's like students but who like you know kind of fell off the path and went his own way or something like that and so that's why Miyagi never mentioned him to to Daniel or something like that so mm -hmm. that, that's one of the things I'm most curious about is seeing how they're able to bring in Jackie Chan's character into the fray and still keep the the universe's canon intact so have you caught up with uh with Cobra Kai are you like uh, current on that no, definitely not. I, I've only seen the first couple seasons. I, I kind of okay. fell behind and, and never caught up. Gotcha. Yeah, I was just curious, like the Ralph Macchio of it all, of, of this whole thing sort of makes me wonder how Cobra Kai is going to deal with the events of this movie, because that show, I think, is still pretty popular. And I think they have at least in one more season on the way. Am I right about that? I don't think the show is over yet, is it? No, I don't uh, think so. I'm pretty sure they have at least one more season to go. Yeah, so I wonder if like this is going to be um, after that, like take place after the events of the final season of Cobra Kai, and like this will be the sort of capstone on on that whole story or what? But the the Ralph Macchio part of it is as as interesting to me as the Jackie Chan of it all, just because he's currently like a major part of the Cobra Kai show, which is this like ongoing thing. So it's not like you know just dusting off this old property um and yeah. bring it to theaters it's like already a, a popular thing that has its own sort of like much more complicated canon than you know what it left off what he left off uh with like what karate kid three or something so yeah um, but the the guys behind cobra kai are very much in tune to like the entire karate kid uh franchise lore so like if there's anyone who like can figure out how to fit it in easily and make it make sense it's them you know they've brought back so many key characters from the karate kid franchise in, in interesting ways on the show that it's uh i think that they can they can pull it off yeah excellent okay well i think that's going to do it for today's episode of the show uh you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode slash film daily is published every weekday bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site you can subscribe to the show on apple overcast spotify wherever you get your podcasts please subscribe to our newsletter there's a link for that in the show notes as well send your feedback questions comments concerns and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.